Last weekend, many people in the Isle of Man celebrated the Queen's Platinum Jubilee. There are many views on our relationship with the Crown, and in this week's perspective, Manx Advocates Peter Cannell tells us about the historical development of our constitutional monarchy. Jane Glover, who helped organise a Jubilee celebration and was a recipient of a recent honour, and Devon Watson, who considers the recent award of city status for Douglas and reflects on the younger generation's views that we should look to become a republic. Manx advocate Peter Cannell has a keen interest in Manx constitutional history, and I spoke to him via Zoom to find out about our fascinating past. If we go back into the depths of time, you know, the, the first ruler of man, we're told, was Manan and Machlia. Uh, no written evidence of that, but um, certainly various songs and, and folklore. Um, but, but in terms of the written evidence, it's not really until the, uh, the chronicles of the kings of man and the isles that we, we start to get a feel for actual kings in the Isle of Man. Yeah, I mean, certainly there appears to have been some form of kingdoms or tribes or clans running before Godred. Um, but the chronicles seem to indicate that with the death of the King of Norway at Stamford Bridge, Godred Croven took the opportunity to come back around to the West Coast, which he was very familiar with, and he conquered Man and the Isles and effectively created it as a separate kingdom beholden to no one. Um, and if you read the chronicles, uh, it appears not only did he control the Hebrides, the Isle of Man, but he had the Kingdom of Dublin under his belt, and he had um, uh, Anglesey as well. So it was quite a large kingdom he managed with, um, and he certainly seemed to be completely sovereign within it. And and, and that that might be quite a difficult concept uh, for them, the the twenty first century listener to get their heads around that in 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 essence the Isle of Man. Uh, was the centre of a kingdom which uh, pretty much ruled all the key spots in our part of the world. Yeah, I mean, best to think of it almost like one of the major trade routes you had to go from Norway to the Mediterranean either went down the east coast of Great Britain or down the west coast. And the east coast meant you went through uh, the North Sea, which was not safe, particularly with pirates off the what we would now call the Netherlands. Um, so it's safer to sail down through the the Western Isles and the Irish Sea, and that's where Godred Croven and the Kingdom of Man and the Isles was, uh, providing protection and obviously taking taxes on the way past. And 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 I suppose then moving on, um, obviously the the kingdom was established. Um, it 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 didn't last for a very long time. Certainly, when you look at the the British monarchy, um, but it it had a fair crack, didn't it? Yeah, I mean, you're looking at about 200 years um, of the Croven dynasty, um, finishing in a bit of a mess up when um, the, the then king of Norway decided he's going to try and reinsert sovereignty over the Western Isles. He actually, the, the full story is quite fascinating, where he actually has to fight his way down through the Western Isles to bring all the various clans in line um, before he could get to the Battle of Largs. So even though he had this mighty fleet, a, they were basically, yeah, they were there because they were told they had to be there, not because they wanted to be there. 
Well, I suppose it would be interesting then to hear a little bit about the eventual decline of the, of the, the Manx Empire, for want of a better word. How, how did that all eventually end up with the English crown effectively being uh, the, the, the one to which we looked to in, in terms of our uh, allegiances? Well, there's some interesting links there. The last of the um, Viking monarchs, for want of a better word, was Queen Africa. And she um, came in along with the Montacutes. She actually gave her rights and regalities to the Montacutes, who then invaded the Isle of Man and drove out the Scots because it had been fought over between the Scots and the English during the Scottish Wars of Independence. Um, and then he then, uh, Montacute then sells it to Le Scroop. He basically sounds a bit of a guy we wouldn't want as king. He loses his head. Um, and as a result of that, Henry the Fourth um, decides that he's going to effectively acquire the Isle of Man by right of conquest. And at that moment, we effectively become a possession of the royal crown or the the, the British crown, um, Henry the Fourth. So he then gives a a feudal right to the Stanleys, who effectively act as kings in the Isle of Man, uh, but. Um, pay a couple of pairs of falcons for the privilege to um, the king. So, the, 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 I mean, the, this, this is the bit that starts getting interesting from a constitutional point of view. Uh, possession of the British crown, what does that actually mean? Um, it means we're not, a, we're, not a, we're not part of the dominion of what is now the United Kingdom. We are effectively a separate kingdom of which the monarch happens to be the same person that sits on the throne of the United Kingdom. So a bit like the you know the queen the present moment the queen holds the queen of Canada queen of Australia various other places that's the relationship we have it's very very different uh, to any of the others um, who are actually by rights of conquest and places like that we we were actually kept separate um, and effectively we've run ourselves as the throne of home rule as we say in our national anthem ever since. I mean, the story goes that the Stanleys decided that rather than become than be petty kings, uh, kings of man, they would uh, rather be grand lords. Um, so they changed the title. Um, is that um, how it actually happened? And is the title Lord of Man appropriate for 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 the ruling monarch, uh, or is that um, uh, would it be better to actually call Queen Elizabeth the second Queen Elizabeth the second of man I would uh, I would think my, my opinion is her correct title would be Queen of man so Elizabeth the second Queen of man um, Lord of man was the there's a very interesting um, speech given by uh, William Kane uh, former first deemster and, and of course me being an advocate I'm never going to uh, if the first deemster has ruled that way, I'm going to stand by it. Um, the 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 main thing was what the Stanleys essentially they want they were having to deal with Henry VIII when they decided to stop calling themselves kings, and I don't think you want to mess around around the court of Henry VIII calling yourself a, a petty king per se. But I think it's quite interesting though, James Stanley II Stanley when he came over to the Isle of Man in 1422, so that's how far back it was effectively constituted a constitutional monarchy system in the Isle of Man, where we had an absentee lord, stroke king, and we had a Timwald, 
that actually advised the lieutenant governor and the lieutenant governor who actually was the executive. Um, so it, it's quite interesting to look back that we were quite advanced in the way that we ran our country because um, 1422 was a long time ago. Around about that time or shortly afterwards, uh, the, the, the Stanleys uh, had a bit of a squabble as to who, who would be the, the success or the successor lord and uh, we ended up with two female governors. That, that's right. Um, Ferdinando Stanley um, was poisoned under mysterious circumstances. I mean, I think it's brilliant that we had a, a, monarch, uh, a king called Ferdinando anyway. <laughs> and his eldest daughter, um, the Countess of Castlehaven, ended up being the lieutenant governor um, while they tried to sort out who inherited it. Because his brother William said it was going to be him, and the court said, "No, we have no jurisdiction in the Isle of Man. It's a separate country." So that's one of our leading cases to towards independence to show that we are a separate sovereign nation. Countess Castlemain, Castlehaven is quite fascinating anyway, because she was the first wife to successfully sue her husband in an English court uh, for violence in the house, and then following her, her um, sister-in-law, sorry, daughter-in-law. Um, which Elizabeth de Vere, she was uh, wife of William. Um, she ended up being lieutenant governor and at one point actually being Lord of Man um, during the interregnum. But in the, while they were trying to sort all this mess out, Elizabeth I, uh, Elizabeth uh, Tudor, actually became uh, had ended up with full regality. So we ended up with uh, Elizabeth I, Queen of Man, uh, so we can have Elizabeth II, Queen of Man too. Queen Elizabeth then takes effectively the the, the full uh, control over the the island, uh, but appoints uh, governor um, because clearly she wasn't going to be coming to, to spend much time in in Castle Russian. Um, how did things develop after that? Well, she gave it when the Stanleys took back control over it. Things were going along until we have uh, the Stanley that's known as Stan Stanlach Moor. Um, more famous as the villain of the piece with Ilium Doan. But mm. when you actually realise what he tried to do, he really is the villain of the piece. He decided that he was going to overturn all our ancient customs and effectively land grab all the, the land that we'd ever farmed. And the result of that was a lot of the farms were abandoned. The place was going down the, the tubes fast. Um, and that's where we end up with um, a whole series of, ye of years of conflict where we try to insist to get our land rights back as Manx people. Um, and eventually, the last Stanley did give us uh, what we were looking for, which was the right to inherit land going right back to time immemorial. Um, so that's where you'll find some of the, the big family names have farms still that are still in their names that have never been sold and transferred because they have the rights to those lands. And, and that differs with uh, in relation to the British uh, system because effectively the, the, the monarch ha owned everything, was that it? Or how did that work? Well, it, it's better to compare it to what happened in Ireland where that didn't happen. And as a result of that, um, the Irish found themselves dispossessed of their own ancestral lands, became tenants, and then were shipped away so that these big farms could be established. The same happened in the west coast of Scotland, where the, the ruling elite effectively took over all the land. So, um, you know, that's what's kept us as, as a separate and sovereign country, is the fact that we can trace these right back to the original Viking and Celtic roots. 
So then uh, we had the Revestment Act, 1765. Um, yeah. what, what was the significance of that? What it did was it took the sovereignty that the, the then Athels then had and took it back off them and gave it back to the crown as a possession of the crown. So from that moment onwards, arguably, there was no need to have a lord of man because we now had a king of man in the form of George the third, and then George the fourth, and so on. So, so then, effectively, no great constitutional developments uh, until, I suppose, uh, the nineteen sixties, when the Isle of Man government started to become a real government. And I, when I say that, I mean it was uh, the government was done by the elected representatives, as opposed to the the governor uh, with his council. Uh, and and then I suppose from there we we develop into the system we have today. Um, how 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 effective do you think our system actually is? I mean, bearing in mind we don't have a written constitution, so it, it, we we can kind of play uh, various games with this, can't we? Well, yeah. I mean, I always <laughs> I jokingly say to my friends across that you know we're small enough we can make the rules up as we go along. Um, but we've actually got uh, the, the we have a constitutional monarchy where the defenders of the rule of law, uh, i.e. the police, the judiciary, uh, may uh, swear an oath of allegiance to the crown, which keeps them independent from Timwald and therefore free of any influence that Timwald could bear on them. In, this is in theory. Um, obviously, everybody else has their own opinions about this, but this is what the structure is, um, which means that, you know, uh, nobody is above the law, um, and our, having an absentee uh, monarch, head of state, effectively, which we have, allows us that ability to bypass um, the greed of man and be able to enforce um, the laws the way we do. So we have a proper separation of powers, we have a proper constitutional monarchy, um, probably with less uh, in day-to-day interference than uh, the Queen has in the UK, uh, even though she has very minimal. But we do have a, an international representation in the form of the Queen and her good services through um, the consulate and um, defence. Couldn't couldn't we, though, just go down the route that many countries have, certainly our, our, our closest neighbour to the West, um, the Republic of Ireland, in, in which they have chosen to elect a head of state, um, why, why would we cling on to something which, bearing in mind the history you've just described, uh, you know, it's 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 far from a glorious past. What what would be the disadvantages for going down the route of an elected head of state? Well, the, the biggest disadvantage, I suppose, would be the influence and presence that has, head of state has in the world. I mean, the most fascinating thing about having the same monarch that is the monarch almost throughout most of the Commonwealth countries that still have a constitutional monarchy, is that we're part of that Commonwealth and we're within that influence. Now, arguably, you can say the same if we have a president, because some have gone down those routes before. The advantage of, of electing a president would maybe it would feel a lot closer to home. Um, but then, of course, you then have all those influences and petty politics that go on internally, which the head of state currently would rise above. I mean... To be perfectly honest, I'm not sure uh, the Queen is particularly bothered about an argument in the middle of Andrus over something or, you know, uh, <laughs> a dispute in the land in Ronig or something like that. Whereas if you had an elected president from the Isle of Man who was born and bred, 
there may be a degree of influence in there, or even if there isn't, there's that implied connection. Um, you know, there's always that standing joke, isn't it, that people from the south don't trust people from the north and vice versa, you know. I mean, and rightly not... so. <laughs> <laughs> we didn't talk about the, the Civil War deliberately since since I've discovered that the south actually won, which really hurts. <laughs> <laughs> I, I suppose the other uh, side to the, the, the question then is, um, what what are the potential disadvantages from having a constitutional monarchy the advantage of having a constitutional monarchy as i said is the way we have and and to be perfectly honest the other one's cost the disadvantage of going for, for a constitutional monarchy is there can be historical baggage there but then i i would always ask the question is whether we can rise above it i mean we need to look from history and we need to be proud of some of our history but some of it isn't grand um and ironically having uh, the the disadvantage that we've had with them in the past, when the monarchy was almost far more feudal than it is now, um, was what we saw with with um, the great Stanley trying to grab all the land. You know, there can be overarching powers. I mean, the lieutenant governors tried to use it too as well, which is why James Brown was famously thrown in jail, and and so was Peter Nor- Peter Norris's dad, and all the other journalists for publishing things that Tim and the, the lieutenant governor didn't like you know those sort of arbitrary powers have gone um which is great um the ultimately i think to be perfectly honest we we are we have to cut our cloth to the size that we are we're a small island and we need a system that works best for us um and anything that increases the costs of running the island with no perceivable economic benefit may be something we shouldn't be thinking about Plus the fact, I always have this sort of feeling, you know, if it ain't too broke, don't fix it. Uh, that's I always joke that we keep things going longer than most other people, which is why we have steam trains, horse-drawn trams, and the biggest water wheel in Europe. Yeah, and I suppose in terms of that ain't broke, don't fix it thing, uh, the royal family has had a scandal or two in, in, in recent years, and... Um, you know, but for for accidents of of birth, uh, we could have ended mm. up with uh, Prince Andrew uh, potentially become, becoming the next king. That's pro- that would probably um, rather rapidly force a rethink on on the whole idea of constitutional monarchy. Yeah, because essentially you're looking at a cost again, a cost benefit analysis. If we're associated with someone who is uh, doesn't have that moral standing that we all expect the sovereign to be, um, changes the whole thing because then it puts us in a bad place on the world stage. That's always that sort of level of, of calculation. But we've got to also be very careful not to confuse the position of monarch and the person that fills that position. You know, there's a sort of ongoing thing. It's like um, the Bishop of Sodran Man is, is a title that has gone on for centuries but there's been individuals that have been in there, some of which uh, are maybe, um, shall we say, haven't covered their uh, purple cloth with glory, and some of them that have. You know, so you've got to differentiate between the actual position, the role, and the individual that's trying to fulfil that role. And again, that's again where the um, constitutional monarchy comes in, because I know in practice it's not been done, but in theory, you know, um, we can actually challenge the monarch. And in fact, actually, if you look at our history. We have done so uh, when we've not been happy, particularly in the Viking times, when people have turned up and said, I'm king of man, and they've gone, no, you're not. Um, that was the big battle at Ronald's Way, which the Manx won. 
against the Scots back in the um, 1200s, 1300s, where somebody turned up and said, oh, I'm the king, and they went, no, you're not. We're not having you. So there is a degree of um, sovereign, sovereignty by acceptance by the people as distinct to sovereignty by force. That was Manx advocate Peter Cannell. Jane Glover helped to organise Arbery and Russian's Jubilee celebration and was awarded an MBE a few years ago. I began by asking Jane how the Jubilee event went. It was phenomenal, Phil. Um, we wanted it to be a celebration. We wanted it to be a community event. Um, and I think initially it was just going to be small scale, but the further we got into the planning, the more people that got involved, the bigger the event uh, became. We were lucky with the weather. Um, I think we had about a 1,000 people turn out, and we've had so much positive feedback. It was truly amazing. And why did the commissioners hold this event? There were various people were saying, you know, what are you doing to celebrate the Queen's Platinum Jubilee? Um, we said, we're planning to do something. We're not quite sure yet. Um, Captain of the Parish of Russian, Stanley Klukas, he's celebrated various jubilees in the past and he offered his orchard to us. So things started to fall into place. Um, and it was really for our parishioners um, to join in the celebration. And in terms of the parishioners, obviously Arbury and Russian um, now combined under one authority, so uh, one event. Yes, um, so we are one local authority, but it covers the two parishes, Arbury and Russian, which is why we had the two captains of the parish opening the event. And what was wonderful, I'm going to list various places now, but we had volunteers from Balabeg, Balakulferic, Craigneesh, Balafessen, Colby, Ronig, um, up the Skird as well. Um, so people joined in, even though the event was on the outskirts of Port Aaron and Russian, joined in from all over both of the parishes. And and in terms of the event, mm-hmm. I mean, the, the the people that were turning out, would you say there was it was, you know, more of a, a, an older age group that's more inclined to be supportive of the monarchy, or would you say it was reflective of the whole of society? I would say because of the content, it was reflective of the whole of society. Um, The Hello Little People attracted the family audience. Um, You had your traditional, your older generation that have grown up with the monarchy and they were probably first to arrive on site. And that was because they did genuinely want to celebrate for the Queen as well as enjoying the entertainment, the traditional choir, Meadowside, choral society. So no, we had all range ranges there. In terms of um, the, the well, the event, we, of course, we were also celebrating a, an award for one of the uh, the community in in, in the south, uh, Pam Crow. She got an MBE, and it was great that she was actually there with Russian Heritage on the day, so we were able to actually get her a congratulations on site. So yeah, she's done various good works over the years, um, and truly deserved it. And of course. Um, Two years ago, was it now? You you also got an MBE. Yes, my MBE was slightly different. A lot of the, the honours you'll get are for um, a long period of service. The one that I had was for works that the commissioners did specifically during the COVID pandemic. And how did that feel? Um, I don't mind admitting that my first words were, sorry, I don't deserve this, because as far as I was concerned, um, I was chair of the authority at the time, Work needed doing, um, stuff needed doing at my local school, at my chapel. Uh, The community needed supporting, so I just got on with it. Um, So I didn't feel worthy. 
Um, but then I realised it was actually, as much as anything, it was a pat on the back for our wonderful community. I mean, 350, 400 volunteers to support our community, I think that's a tremendous response. And, and in terms of that whole process then, uh, how, does, how does it actually work? Uh, how, what, how, how do you, well, I suppose, first of all, how do you get nominated? And then what, what, what then happens I'm not fully okay with this process. I've heard various different things. I think my friend said she um, nominated somebody a few years ago. Um, other people have said, no, you need letters of commendation. I've since found out um, at the event, the Jubilee event, who one of my letters of commendation was from. Um, and I actually sought advice from family friends, um, Sir Miles Walker and Lady Mary at the time. And they said, it's, it's a rigorous process. They'll check you out. Um, they don't just take your name out of a hat. They will actually investigate what you've done and do some research. So so that's all I know, to be honest, Phil. And in terms then of, of the process of, of being informed, um, that there's, a, there's a lot of secrecy around that initially, isn't there? Yes. Um, I remember the phone call distinctly. It was a Sunday evening in November. And as I say, my first reaction was, sorry, don't deserve it. Um, the then governor, Sir Richard Gosney, said, if you'd like to think about it, that's fine, which I did. Um, so then it was a case of keeping it secret. I did tell my husband on pain of death, um, but that was it. And it was revealed on the New Year's Eve. And I seem to recall the other breaking news that uh, that eve was to do with COVID again. So <laughs> <laughs> bit of an irony. Yes, timely. Um, and, and then, of course... The, the other element to this is that uh, you have to, well, you don't have to, but um, you can uh, have a trip away to actually receive this honour. Yes, um, mine was delayed. I was given the opportunity of having it over here because of the circumstances, but I decided to wait. And I'm truly glad that I did. Um, I got a booklet because, as I say, I hadn't really, I'd never thought about the honour system and how it worked. But initially it was just military honours and then it was introduced in the 1930s that civilians would be recognised. And when you look at the things that people have done, voluntarily, a lot of them, for their communities. So when I was at Windsor chatting to people prior to receiving my MBE, that really warmed my heart because some of the people there were people that just did what they did for the love of it for their people. So having a commendation like this really reinforced what they were doing. Such inspiring stories. It was a fabulous thing to go to. Um, I did lose my husband at the start of the event, but I found him by the end. So, But yes, that's, that, that, that's the thing I found really um, most enjoyable about the event. Um, and I was lucky enough to have my award presented by Prince Charles, who, of course, has been to the Isle of Man, recognised the Manx Tartan Sash, so was talking about the Isle of Man um, and how we'd fared during COVID. Um, and two days after I returned, I received an email um, because he had COVID. And I was classed as a, a close contact of Prince Charles at the time. <laughs> <laughs> and and th in terms of the actual event, presumably it's not just a case of rocking up five minutes before and... Uh, uh, taking your seat, uh, there would be security uh, and, and all this sort of stuff. A fabulous welcome. Um, and you get moved from room to room throughout, rooms that probably the public never see. Um, but all the staff and all the welcomers, fantastic. So you, you rock up about half nine, ten in the morning 
and you're gone by one thirty in the afternoon. Um, so yes, we saw various different rooms. Um, we were masked up at the time. Um, I stumbled into one lady who I later worked out was Dawn French. So it's strange who you meet in these places. And um, in in terms of the uh, event, then um, the lasting memory of of, of the whole thing. Uh, all the people that I met, the stories that I heard, the people that I chatted to, I think that was probably my um, my favourite element and being able to curtsy without falling over. <laughs> and and uh, I suppose, I mean, looking at, at this then from a, uh, a a different perspective, I mean, a, a lot of the Manx people that I speak to who, who turn out to these events, or at least some of the Manx people I, t- I speak to that turn out to these events say, Sort of, uh, possibly with a nod to knowing that uh, I'm 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 a Manx uh, nationalist and and maybe not as strong a supporter of the monarchy as they might be. Um, well, you know, uh, we're quite uh, you know it, it's a good a good reason for a bit of a do, isn't it? But we're not really into all this thing with kings and queens and stuff. Uh, what what do you think about? I mean, is 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 that? Uh, pragmatic uh, Manx way of looking at, th- at things uh, prevalent or do you think the mo- majority of people on the island are uh, actually big supporters of the monarchy? I think our people are both. I think we have a strong national identity of our own. I know for me when I'm belting out the anthems I know which I sing loudest, uh, Throne of Home Rule. But equally I think our people are passionate supporters off the monarchy. I mean, my late mother used to talk about the sacrifice that they put forward, and I'd say, well, they're in a privileged position, Ma, and she said, yes, but their life isn't their own. Um, and I think our our public do recognise that they try to do charitable works um, across the, the whole of Britain. Um, I'd quite like it if we had our own Manx on the system, and I know there are some Manx awards. Um, and that's the thing that I think I found encouraging was that this wasn't done from a, a distant room, somebody picking a name out of the hat. They consulted local people with local knowledge about the individuals that put, were put forward um, for the awards. So I think our, our public are both, actually, Phil. And, of course, the Manx Awards would be the uh, the Tinmold Honour and the, uh, the the thing that a lot of people call the Rye Bina Vanannan, uh, Rye, Rye the, yes. the uh, Mananan's uh, annual award, uh, which is given out for, for cultural and uh, heritage purposes. Yes, those are the awards that I'm thinking of. And I think um, for some people on the Isle of Man, they would prefer to receive one of those honours. That would mean more to them than receiving an MBE, an OBE, um, etc., um, and I certainly know it would never happen to me, but but if I did, I would probably treasure that one more if I'm allowed to say that. Do you think there's a future for for the monarchy, <laughs> um, either in terms of the Isle of Man or indeed in terms of uh, the United Kingdom? Certainly in the short term, yes. I think a lot more questions are asked of what the relevance of having such an institution um, in the nation. Um, and it'll be interesting to see what our, our younger generation think going forward because obviously they haven't grown up quite with the same experience that we have um, and we're much more of a global interconnected society now um, 
so for the short term yes but the longer term that might be different um, at the moment some people would prefer to have uh, the queen and her family as the head of state than the current english parliament and i think you know why um, but equally as time progresses um, and I think sometimes people have a moral dilemma about the amount of money that's perhaps spent on maintaining um, such an institution, marvellous as it may be, in a cost of living crisis, there are some of us that sometimes struggle with, are we sending our monies in the right direction? I have a friend of the family that put a fabulous Facebook post up as I was organising our Jubilee event. Um, it was an expletive, the Jubilee, feed the starving. So I think there are a lot of different opinions now within our people. So it'd be interesting to see. And of course, there are cheaper versions of the monarchy in, in other uh, European countries. I think, uh, is it Bel Belgium, Holland, Norway? Uh, certainly Norway. Um, they, they, they have, a, 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 I suppose, monarchy light. Uh, do you think possibly there's, there's some way in which uh, the, the wings could be clipped in terms of the, the expense Possibly, um, but equally on the flip side, um, if you think about the revenue that the royals bring into the British economy, um, there's that side of thing. You know, the tourism in London, I remember when I was uh, a nanny for Robert Quayle in, in London when I was 18, 19, um, and I had to go and see the beef eaters and all of that, and there were all the cameras clicking. Um, so there is a great, strong following, um, so possibly, um, but it's not really something I would see as coming around the corner quickly. And of course, from the Isle of Man's perspective, um, we, we pay very little. Uh, the only thing we really uh, pay for in relation to the monarchy is the role of the lieutenant governor. Yes, um, and uh, certainly the last few governors that I've had contact with, um, they embrace the Isle of Man, its culture, they support it. Uh, they dive in deep and they truly do appreciate what we have here on the Isle of Man. So that's good publicity for, for our community, um, for, for our world, so to speak. Um, and some would say he's, it's an expensive um, thing to maintain. And, and part of me at times may agree with that. But equally, the events that they host, the charities that they support... Um, and you and you see when they travel around um, the warmth that the the governor is greeted with. Um, so it obviously still matters to a lot of our people. And could we not have our own elected head of state uh, go down this uh, the route of a republic uh, elected head of state fulfilling the same role, um, but actually the choice of the people? Would that not work? Possibly, yes. Um, I mean, I remember when the last. Uh, the role was advertised, my sister said, why don't you apply? Have a, a Manx female be, you know, the governor of the Isle of Man. Um, so I think that's something we could could pursue. Uh, I think it'd be an interesting thing to pursue. Um, but at this moment in time, I think the public are happy with the way it's, the majority are happy with the way it is. And interestingly, you should mention that, uh, we heard earlier in the programme from Peter Cannell, that the first two uh, or, or two of the earliest governors were women. Something we do um, have to bear in mind is the way where our constitution is at the moment. Um, our legislation has to be passed by Her Majesty. Um, and I know from talking to 
the current MHK, and I was saying, you know, does she really pay much interest? Oh, yes, she reads it through and she queries things. And if that's not a reason for even the most uh, hardened Republican to have some sympathy to the Queen, the fact that she has to read through all the <laughs> all the acts of Tenwood. Yes, yes, you do. Yes, you do. That was Jane Glover, MBE. Devon Watson is one of our younger politicians and a Douglas councillor. I began by asking him about city status. Uh, yeah, very cool. Um, let's hope that this actually creates city-level services and it's not simply a... Um, uh, lipstick on a pig. Um, but yeah, no, it's, it's exciting stuff. And I think, um, yeah, it's cool to have a capital city instead of a capital town. Um, but yeah, so let's hope that this, this change is more than sort of uh, superficial. And what was the thinking behind uh, actually going for this, uh, the, the, the city status? I mean, it had been applied for before. We already had a previous application. Um, it cost us absolutely nothing. So it was the view of, of officers and the previous council to sort of um, uh, make the application and submit it in and weren't really sure we'd get it and we got it. Um, and it's exciting stuff. I mean, I think it's being one of the first crown dependencies to get it is is cool. It is an honor. Um, but then again, let's let's sort of hope that this is more than a, simply a symbolic measure because I think that's what a lot of people are worried about. I think people are worried about, will this mean that we pay higher rates? And as a renter on a sort of median income, I, I don't really want to pay uh, higher rates in order to justify city status. And I genuinely don't think that this is going to happen. Um, but yeah, so I, I think it's about leveling up who we are and sort of putting us put, putting us on the map. The status was granted by the Queen. Uh, the Queen um, is the head of state of the Isle of Man. Uh, and I suppose, that, I mean, this is the focus of this programme, really. Um, and, and what I was interested in... Uh, looking at various polls uh, in, in particular i mean these are based in the uk but i imagine they're reflective of the isle of man as well what that what the polls seem to indicate is that whilst the queen remains uh, very very popular amongst all age groups uh, the whole principle of whether we should continue to have a monarchy or whether we should look to become a republic the younger the generation is is the the more likely that they will say actually um, we we you know the monarchy is a thing of the past and we should be looking to a a, um, a, a new model uh, possibly a, a, as a as a republic. Um, I mean you're you're a young person, relatively young compared with me anyway. Yeah. Um, what, what what's your your view? Uh, I'm I'm actually a republican. Um, I think that our head of state should be elected. I think that. For example, personally in the Alaman, I think that the Alaman's head of state should be someone who actually has lived here for a very long period of time, who uh, is part of the culture. I mean, and I, I think it's only right that in a democratic society, institutions of power are determined uh, democratically. Um, and the exact form of that can be debated, but I think that uh, the probably one of the least favorable ways of going about this is a hereditary monarchy and to many other folks in the world this this does seem strange to a lot of young people this does seem strange so recent YouGov polling coming out shows that 50 percent uh maybe even closer to 60 percent of people under the age of 35 would prefer to become a republic um and is this just like a thing that young people believe and then they get more conservative as they get older the data doesn't indicate this doesn't show that this is the case because support for the monarchy has fallen pretty dramatically from 77% to 60% um, among all age groups. Um, 
And it's one of those where if you look at, and this is more pronounced if you look geographically, so a majority of Scots um, are, are now Republicans. They do not support the monarchy. Uh, the monarchy's support is, is collapsing in places like Wales. Um, Barbados has recently just stripped uh, Queen Elizabeth of her title of head of state. They've just re- removed all references to crown and replaced it with state. Jamaica is becoming a republic. Uh, Australia's new government has now appointed a minister of republic to sort of move away from the monarchy. And Canada is now also exploring uh, removing the monarchy. Um, and this effect is probably going to become a lot more pronounced because Queen Elizabeth, by many, is viewed as being quite admirable. But uh, King Charles, for example, um, will not command the same support. And and particularly after recent scandals, I imagine a lot more people are going to be keen for an alternative to hereditary monarchy. Having an elected head of state doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to get stability. No, I mean, but I think what having uh, an elected head of state means is though there's something you can do about it, right? You can you can punish people for bad behavior at the ballot box. So it's only like a weird fluke of history that, for example, uh, we're going to get King Charles instead of King Andrew. Um, and we could have had someone who, I, I don't know if this is appropriate for radio, but someone who uh, allegedly uh, was involved in sex trafficking um, could have been a king of a king of the Isle of Man or Lord of Man and a king of the Commonwealth. Um, and there'd be absolutely nothing we could do about it. But if there's an elected head of state, they can be removed. But I think it's also worth noting that the abuses we've seen in the UK have taken place whilst we are under a monarchy. And the monarchy, theoretically, is supposed to fulfill the role of providing this this role of stability. The, the main argument for the monarchy is that they are supposed to prevent us from slipping into tyranny. Um, and yet, despite the sort of questionable decisions the British government has made over the past few decades, that oversight role has sort of never been played. But where the monarchy does intervene in politics, and there's this myth that, for example, the monarchy never intervenes in politics, but there have been 166 instances where they've lobbied. Um, as Manx people, or people who live on the Isle of Man, we know that our laws are all vetted by the Privy Council, and the fact that there is a Privy Council actually means is that our members of Tinwald adjust what they put up. So, for example, cannabis legalisation is just uh, is something that is like, well, we might not get approval for this. Um, recently, when it comes down to assisted dying, it was debated in Tinwald, should we even put this through, because uh, we might not get royal assent. They've uh, lobbied against equality legislation, which is why deep into the 60s, uh, people who were of minority backgrounds or immigrant backgrounds could not sort of be uh, staff. So they do intervene in politics. And I mean, this is a lot more pronounced if you look at, for example, um, Prince Charles, who will be monarch eventually, maybe not too long. Um, But for example, um, his views on homeopathy ended up pressuring the NHS to keep that uh, as a funded service far longer than they wanted. And there are loads of examples. For example, the Sovereign Grant, his lobbying sort of meant that they got a far more generous subsidy, whilst um, uh, councils and um, benefit recipients across the UK had huge cuts to the amount of money that they received. So, um, But that lobbying is only successful if the people who are elected decide to follow that, 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 that lobbying. And, and, you know, I think the, the role that the monarch plays, the power, the limited power that she has, is uh, often called soft power. So this is the um, whispering in, in, in ears or having quiet asides mm. in the confidential meetings that the Queen might have with the mm. Prime Minister in England, for example, g- giving her, her, her advice and, and experience over, over those long, long uh, periods of time. So that, that surely is a good thing. And that's something that you wouldn't ever get with a elected head of state, because I, c- I can't imagine an elected head of, head of state being in position for several decades. 
No, I mean, I think, and it's probably good that uh, an elected uh, head of state is not in a single position for several decades. And and why? Because countries change over time. I mean, the opinions that are like 25 years ago, for example, uh, gay marriage was viewed as being absolutely insane. There was a time where 50, 60, 70, 80 years ago, perhaps maybe even interracial marriage was viewed as as, as absurd. So naturally, the people who represent us do need to change as the opinions of the, of the country do change. Um, and uh, what we're going to end up having is we're going to have a situation where, for example, King George, um, when he comes in, is going to be a monarch long after we're gone. Um, I'm not going to live to see the end of his reign, uh, certainly not. Um, when when he does sort of come to come to the fore, if we still have monarchy by then, but I think it's also one of those where we can look examples of successful republics, and we can look across the water to, to uh, Ireland, where Michael Higgins, for example, has a approval ratings that rival or even surpass the Queen. And whilst we, when you look at the Queen's speech, you get lectures about how we all have to tighten our belts and cut back while they sit on a golden throne, uh, a royal family worth seventy billion um, pounds. Well, Michael Higgins uh, pushes against austerity and is actually on the forefront of talking about the cost of living crisis. So the lobbying in the sort of direction that people make can be a lot more representative of us. And it's weird that in a, in a sort of a realm of 65 million people that the people of the UK can't possibly find someone better. I mean, it could be David Attenborough, it could be Stormzy, it could be um, anyone, really. Who knows, right? I mean, and, and that's the thing is, if they're bad, you can be removed and if they're good, they can be sort of uh, put there. But and Iceland, for example, has an excellent head of state. Uh, Finland has an excellent head of state. Um, she's uh, a woman in her thirties, um, and she's doing a great job of of pushing things forward. So I, I think it's also if we want to look at more broader reforms to Britain and our and our system, we need to start looking at constitutional reform and actually creating a codified constitution. An Irish constitution is something that's fairly simple. But that would mean sort of changing our head of state. And this is a much larger process. But I think sort of making questions as to what sort of form of government we want to have is the, is, is the genesis of that, of that process. Is there a, a compromise here between the hardened Republican and the uh, ardent uh, monarchist? Is, is there a, some kind of um, monarchy light option uh, that some of the, uh, the, the, the countries in Europe uh, have gone down that, that route? I mean, perhaps. I think it's one of those where, I mean, if you look at the way the support breaks down, I mean, most monarchists are, are somewhat soft monarchists if you look at the polling. So um, 56% of people were completely uninterested in celebrating the Platinum Jubilee. We all love a bank holiday. But I mean, we don't need a sort of head of state or we don't need the Queen to sort of grant us this. I mean, we all we produce all the value in the country. We can take home and every day's off that we, that we like. Um, but only 11% were really keen on supporting the Jubilee. But and if you found that people... so. Monarchist support seems to be fairly soft support, whereas Republican support seems to be quite hard Republican support. And I think that once you make the argument that we should have less authority for the crown, making the argument that there should be some authority for the crown uh, doesn't really seem to make much sense. But yeah, I mean, I think a lot of people, I mean, I think people in Britain, people in the Alabama are famously pragmatic. So I can't imagine that there's there's too much extremism on either way. But we can see that there's examples where things do work quite well. I mean, there is a tourism argument. But if you look at France, for example, um, they've managed to have their the sites of their former royalty visited far more frequently than those in Britain. And I think that as you run down the arguments of monarchy, you can find that a lot of these are the same, if not better, in a, in a Republican system. The whole concept of monarchy may well 
be a little bit outdated and, and old-fashioned. It's kept us where we are, so we'll just stick with it. Is, is that a fair assessment that maybe uh, younger people have, have less to, to lose at, at that earlier stage in life? They, 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 have, they own less, they've, they've got less, less wealth. Is, is that a fair assessment, do you think? I mean, uh, to an extent, but I think there's, there's two things to touch on, is support for the monarchy doesn't typically tend to grow with age. Um, so polling tends to brought this out. In fact, the, the sport is declining over time. But secondly, when it comes down to investment in the system, young people, uh, as they get older, aren't growing more conservative. In fact, they're probably growing a, a bit more left wing because they aren't getting that investment in the system as sort of uh, access to sort of cheap university tuition has been taken away, as housing uh, has become unaffordable, as there's very little upward social mobility in the economy. There are many people in their 30s and 40s who are paying off student loans and, and haven't managed to scrape enough money to sort of start putting into retirement. So they're in investment in where we are right now is is diminishing because they're getting much less. And I think having the symbol of that as an unelected head of state that is worth, or the family as a whole is worth 70 billion pounds, whilst people struggle to make their rent. Um, and the share of wealth held by millennials as they hit their 40s now um, isn't rising in proportion with their population numbers. So I think that republicanism is more of a symptom of deeper dissatisfaction with the status quo than anything else. Um, and and you see the collapse of, of monarchy support throughout the realm that she that she has, particularly within the Caribbean and, and the former colonies, um, and in areas outside of England. And what you see is a herald of things to come. So it's not a question of of if; it's a question of when. And we need to, to sort of determine where we are where we are on that curve and what system we have to replace it because it is coming. We just simply need to to figure out what comes next. So, has the monarchy outlived its usefulness? Does our constitutional monarchy represent the best chance for continued stable government? I'm not sure this programme helps us answer these questions, but it certainly has provided food for thought. But for now, I'm Phil Gorn, Guramayus and Geishakram. Thanks for listening.